Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August 19, 2020. This is episode 2715 of the Survival Podcast. It's Wednesday, it's interview day. I have a young man, 18 years old, named Michael Evans on today. What would an 18-year-old talk to you about? How about this? Living boundlessly and hustling for your best life. What does an 18-year-old know about that? Did you tune in today to hear an 18-year-old tell you about living boundlessly and, 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 and finding your best life? Did you really? You did. I'll tell you a little bit about this kid. 18 years old. He's been accepted to Harvard already. He's founded a publishing company already. He's published multiple books already. So just maybe, just maybe we can learn something from an 18-year-old with that type of an attitude and that type of a get-shit-done uh, ethos. So we'll have Michael on in just a minute. Before we do, let's go ahead and take care of our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is ButcherBox.com. Um, this makes me realize there's a product I need to bring you on T-SPAS that I haven't yet. It's called the Meter, meter M-E-A-T-E-R, the Meter Thermometer. Uh, what does that have to do with ButcherBox? Man, I have come up with the best way to make a ButcherBox tri-tip. It's, it's just fantastic. You get yourself a cast iron pan. You put it in your oven. You set your oven to 450 degrees. You let the oven come up to temperature and bring the pan up to temperature. You maybe leave it in there for like 20 minutes after it hits 450. Then using a pot holder so you don't burn your, you know, don't burn the print of your, the handle of your cast iron pan into your hand. You take that pan out, you put it up on your stovetop, you go ahead and hit it with more heat. While this is all going on, you rub your tri-tip with a mix. And it's up to you what you want to use. This is what I've been using. I'm not giving you exact amounts because I don't have them. I just throw them in there. That's how I cook. Chili, chili powder, garlic, cumin, salt, pepper. All right, that's, that's the mix I've been using with this. And a little bit, you can either use brown sugar If you use sugar, or like me, you can use the golden Lakanto uh, sugar substitute. Um, and then you, you really hit it heavy with that. You, I mean, so, I mean, it is coated in it. And you let it sit, coming up to temperature. I usually take a paper plate, lay it over the top of it, put a, a, a dish towel over top of that. Keeps flies off it and reduces canine temptations, right? Let that sit there for about 30 minutes like that so it really sticks to it. So then you go, like I said, at the end of that, you bring that skillet out, put it up on, on your stove, get that thing good and hot, a good high smoke point oil on there, like avocado oil or coconut oil, and you sear both sides of it, a couple minutes each, and you have your meter thermometer in the middle of this thing. Then you just take your whole skillet and you stick it back into your oven at 450, cook to your desired temperature. I cook to um, about 140, and that'll give you a carryover temperature of about 145. That gives me a well done done on the edges and nice and pink in the center. I would cook to about 135 and let it carry over to 140 if it was up to me. But Dorothy doesn't like rare meat, so that's our compromise temperature is letting it carry over to 145. But you do whatever you want. That meter thermometer is awesome. And butcher box, let me tell you, if you haven't been doing the tri-tips, I, I don't know what is with their tri-tips. They're a little oddly shaped. But my God, they're good. Everything about butcher box is great. Become a customer today. And remember... MSB members, you get 10, bo 10 bucks off every box for life. And ButcherBox is not doing these discounts for anybody, anywhere, anymore, except the MSB. 
So they're a really great sponsor. Next up today, FSP, the Free State Project. You might want to look at living a little bit better life like we're going to talk about today. And one way to do that is have more liberty in it. Well, if you check out New Hampshire, you might find out that you want to become part of this group of people known as the Free State Project. A group of people that moved to New Hampshire with the intent to drag it kicking and screaming against its will, if necessary, into the world of liberty. Check them out today at fsp.org forward slash visit New Hampshire. Check them out today, man. fsp.org. That's where to learn more. Check out the Free State Project. I have supported these guys for a decade now. For a decade. And that says something when I've supported somebody. So, yeah, they're a sponsor now. And they've been a sponsor before. But I'm giving them, like, I gave them two years of free sponsorship. I've spoken at their events. Guys, when I give that much to an organization, you know that I believe in what they're doing. And if you check out what they do, you'll find out why I've invested so much in them. Because if you think about it, I, for various reasons, am not leaving Texas. So for me to invest in something going on in New Hampshire, why would I do that? Because I believe liberty anywhere is, is good for liberty everywhere. Check them out today again, fsp.org. With that, let's go ahead and get into uh, a subject today. But I want to start out with a quote before I bring Michael Evans on. This is from George Bernard Shaw. I figure we have an author on. Let's put another author on for the quote of the day. And can we find something that fits in with hustling for your best life and living boundlessly? George Bernard Shaw said, life isn't about finding yourself. Life is about creating yourself. I think that's true, sort of. What do you mean true, sort of, Jack? Well, what I mean by that is it is about creating yourself. You today are not what you're going to be tomorrow. That, that's what George Bernard Shaw is saying. You today are not what you're going to be tomorrow unless you do nothing with yourself. And you know how I feel about the sliding scale that is life. You will be something different tomorrow. What? whether it's for good or bad, is largely up to you. You can learn one more thing today so you know one more thing tomorrow. You can take one more action today so you have one more thing tomorrow. Or you can do nothing and you'll have less tomorrow. You will never maintain stasis in life. You will either advance or you will move backwards. Because as life moves forward with you, if you're not advancing, it's pushing you back. That's how it works. However, I don't think that we should write off finding ourselves. When an artist takes a piece of marble and turns it into a sculpture, there's the old saying that they don't really create the sculpture. They just remove the part that wasn't the sculpture. Right. But if I have two pieces of marble, one can become something and another will become something else. And a, and a good artist will realize that this piece of marble isn't right for this thing. It's important that I discover what it is as I'm trying to make it into what I want it to be. And I think that's true about us. And just hold on to that thought. We'll have a great interview here with Michael. And I'll come back to you with a song of the day that kind of drives that point home. And with that, let me say, hey, Michael, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, Jack, how's it going? Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited for it. Hey, I'm glad to have you on today. I think it's going to be a great interview. I told the audience a little bit about your background, and uh, usually, I, you know, I, I tell a guest like, tell us a little bit about your background, and say go back to like high school, but that was like yesterday for you, right? So, <laughs> so I mean, let, let's just kind of go and take a, a jump right into the subject today. Um, you decided to go into the world of publishing. And you're 18 years old. You got a lot going on for an 18 year old. What was it like taking a leap and like coming up with an initial investment to start a publishing company at 18 years of age? Or actually, did you start it 
when did you start it? Did you start it younger? Yeah, I started it at uh, 15, I guess, is when I started this whole wow. journey. It feels like a lifetime ago, yet it feels like yesterday at the same time. And I think at first, it's kind of funny. I didn't really know what I was getting into. I think that's true for a lot of entrepreneurs. I think I just I, – I thought this is what I love to do, and I'm going to go for it. I, I worked at – I live in Charleston, South Carolina, so I worked – at a resort, um, it's called Wild Dunes, if anyone's ever been there. It's pretty nice there. So I worked there as a pool tenant for the summer, and I just literally saved up all, all everything I made, which is not too hard to do when uh, I took advantage of the fact that you know my parents, or I should say my mom, a single mom, she's the best. She provides a roof over my head, so I didn't have to necessarily worry about paying rent, but I put all the money to the side, invested into publishing my first book, and after I published that first book, I realized, one, this is awesome. It's kind of like addicting once you get like a hit of the entrepreneurial drug. But I also realized that this is going to be a really, really long journey because I think anything in entrepreneurship, whether you're building, uh, you know, really, I'm in the business of publishing, which is in the business of building author brands. So whether you're building an author brand, whether you're building a brand for a podcast like, like you've done, you've built an awesome brand. I, what I've found is that it takes 10 times longer than you originally thought. Probably it's 10 times harder than you originally thought, but the reward is 10 times greater. And uh, that's what I'm realizing and have realized over the last couple of years. So it's been really awesome. And I want to say that I've always been a risk taker. So taking that initial financial risk, I didn't even bat an eye on it because I just knew like in the long run, this will work out. And I think me always focus on the future in the long run is what made it pretty easy to go and look at my bank account and go, oh, it's a lot lower the next day because you put your money into building an asset. But I understood even back then that you know, building these assets and building this brand would pay off in the long run. And uh, I definitely it's starting to pay off now. And I think in the long run, it, it'll end up proving to be a really great investment of uh, my time and capital. Well, you know, no matter what happens, the investment is huge because what you've learned – in these few years, it will translate for the rest of your life. Like, you have already taken the leap. You've gotten to that edge, you decide you want to do something, and you, you freaking did it, right? So now, if you want to start another company, if you want to build another brand, you're light years ahead of where you would have been otherwise. And on that note, what's your advice for people who have an idea or a passion they want to pursue, but, you know, they're letting fear or lack of knowledge or anything get in their way of getting started oh yeah fear's the biggest thing that stops everyone i think uh the rule with writing is that 90 percent of people who want to write a book don't start it and then 90 percent of the people who actually are writing that book never finish that book so if you can just kind of do something and finish it you're so ahead of the game but it's it's really really hard i won't try and sugarcoat it to get over that fear but the ways that have worked for me on the knowledge end that's the easiest one to tackle i think Given that we all have, or most, if you're listening to this podcast, odds are you have access to the internet. Um, that's a really great equalizer when it comes to accessing information. And in all honesty, that's where I've learned most, if not everything, in terms of entrepreneurship. That and just practice. Um, but accessing and the education for it is really easy online. Between YouTube, Google, if you do your due diligence and look up all these different sources for the specific niche that you're trying to go and tackle, you can really, really learn a lot and very fast. So that's really awesome. But taking the time to do it and taking the capital, because oftentimes even if the business doesn't require huge capital up front, at some point you're probably going to have to put some some muscle behind it. That's the bigger fear to get over. I think the biggest thing to first realize is that 
doing anything requires sacrifice. I think people fear that if I do this, then I won't have time to do this or I might not or I might not be able to maybe go on vacation if I decide to invest into this business. And I think, yeah, you might not. Right. I mean, that's part of like growing up. (laughs) Exactly. And I think the biggest part of realizing is that you won't. You have to just go in it with thinking this is the sacrifice I have to make if I want to do this. And you have to line out and see what am I willing to do in my own self personally. When I was really, after I'd published, I think one or two books, I was realizing that if I was to keep going at the rate that I was going at, which is, you know, working maybe five to 10 hours a week on my business between that and school, because schools, we can, we'll probably talk about later. School has its own set of issues, but it sucked away a lot of time. And I realized five to 10 hours a week is not going to get me to the top of the author game or the top of any game. I mean, frankly, unless you get really lucky. So I knew that, that my biggest asset is, uh, right now in my life is time. I need to make more of it. So I need to sacrifice a lot. So what I chose to do was I chose to take a few classes online um, at a local community college to finish up my high school credits a year early. And I took a gap year after graduating high school year early and basically said during this year, I'm going to basically talk to no friends, uh, basically do nothing but work 80 hours a week in this business. And I've basically gotten farther in this year then way farther than my entire life combined before that. But the sacrifice is pretty big. I gave up my senior year of high school. And then this is just for me, right? Everyone's going to have different sacrifices for their own individual situation. But for me, like giving up my senior year of high school, prom and all that stuff, that was big. But what I also realized is like those sacrifices, what I was really sacrificing is what society told us is what we should be doing. So for me, at that stage of my life, that those sacrifices were related to high school and the traditional education path that I foregoed. But I, what I realized even then was that what society tells us to do doesn't really make us happy. It's really just to, in my opinion, indoctrinate us into being good employees and great consumers. And at the end of the day, that isn't fulfilling for anyone. And what I just realized kind of hit this rock bottom where I went – I'm doing everything. I'm getting good grades. I'm in participating in all these clubs, whatever. I'm doing all the things that the average 17, 18 year old kid is told to do and be happy, but I was miserable. And that's when I realized this isn't even a sacrifice. Like, what am I fearing when I really have nothing? When I, what I mean by nothing is that the life that I'm going down right now is a path that although is, you know, what we're told is great. It wasn't feeling great to me, and what I've gathered is that most people feel the same way. They feel unfulfilled in the lives they're living, even though they're hardworking, they're doing everything correctly. And I think the the sad truth is that what we're told to do by the world isn't correct. So, frankly, if you're afraid of missing out on a vacation, if you're afraid on getting that you won't be able to buy that new iPhone this year, you know what? You're right. You probably won't be able to do any of that, but in my opinion, none of that really matters because at the end of the day, if you can take a risk and – and do something entrepreneurially or really just pursue your passion, that's going to provide you with so much more fulfillment and happiness at the end of the day, forsaking the money aside. Like at the end of the day, that isn't even really what matters because it's really just about the happiness. And for me, this has been the happiest year of my life. And that would be what I'd um, hopefully tell everyone who's fearing something. When you ever you make a change, it's so hard. It's so hard to make a change. But once you write down and really think about the sacrifices that you're willing to make because some sacrifices you might not be, right? Like if you, you don't want to maybe sacrifice church on Sundays, if you're really religious, don't sacrifice church. Don't maybe sacrifice exercising. Don't, no one should do that. But there's certain sacrifices that you should make and there's all things that we're doing, whether it's you're watching 
TV too much, you're on the computer too much, whether you're spending money on this, all, all these kinds of things that you make. And although, sure, it's easier to just keep doing that, the pain that you suffer in the short term making those changes in the long run will be so much better. So I guess my advice is to everyone, in most scenarios, we can all make the necessary sacrifices to pursue our passions without really doing any long-term damage. So in the short run, although we have to make a lot of changes and there's a lot of fear that comes with that, I actually don't think we should have any fears about any of it. Um, and hopefully listening to my short story on that kind of helped everyone get over some of their fears because I know realizing that helped me and I'm super thankful in retrospect that I did that. So being an entrepreneur is a big step, and and people tend to uh, to delay doing things because of analysis paralysis. And being an entrepreneur has a, as you know now, a, a litany of skills that are required. You're everything from CEO to chief bottle washer when you start out as a solo uh, solopreneur. How did you go about acquiring the skills you needed to get things done? Oh yeah, that's super super important. I think. The biggest thing for me has been practicing and actually like being in the game of entrepreneurship is how I learned. So when I went into this, I didn't know much of anything about digital advertising, which um, is pretty important for most authors, um, depending on their business model. For me, ended up it is an integral part of my business model. So I didn't know how to run Facebook ads or Amazon ads. I didn't know any of that going into it, and I didn't even necessarily, you know, I just knew I got to start practicing it. So what I did is I took a course, um, and I actually helped intern for the person who creates the course and kind of got the information that way. So I didn't even have to really pay for it necessarily. So there's actually ways where you can get premium, and I, I'll, I'm not like, you can't see me, but quotes there, premium information um, without actually buying it. And also, too, at the end of the day, all the information that I learned in that course, you could have gotten it for free um, on YouTube. It was it was a good course, but um, you don't actually need to spend any money out of pocket, kind of going back to like Google and um, YouTube. But then at the end of the day, that was only the baseline where I really was able to level up my game in digital advertising was by actually sitting sitting in the Facebook ads manager, sitting in the Amazon ads dashboard and actually running those ads, getting that data and making decisions based off that data, which is practice. Likewise with branding. How did I get better at branding? I literally saw what worked, saw what people responded to and did more of that. And even with writing, I've never taken an actual creative writing class. What I, what I've done is I've gotten people to read my books, give me feedback and just with practice and time, I've gotten better. So I think how I've developed those skills mainly is just through practice, through going and mess, messing up, making mistakes and recognizing that, you know, at the end of the day, I'd rather make 10, 10 decisions in a day and mess up on three of them than only make one good decision. And uh, that's how I've been. I'd rather just move quickly, do a lot and learn as I go. And it's worked for me. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs too have to follow a similar route today because frankly, even if you go and get a degree in something in college, by the time you're out of college and actually out in the field with the rate at which technology is moving, you, those those things you learned are probably already out of date. So everyone's constantly learning and constantly evolving. And that's what I've learned. Like basically my entire life, I'm going to be just testing, making mistakes, taking risks and just trying to get better at what I'm doing. And, um, you know, ultimately you want to be better than your competition. What's kind of nice about um, my specific field is that um, I don't necessarily have to put other authors at a business. That's not my goal at all. Um, hopefully there's enough readers uh, out there for everyone. But in other businesses, you know, you can't have 10 ice cream shops in the same block. So, um, you know, in that case, you got to try and uh, 
try and be the best. And that just comes with iteration and practice, which I, uh, going back to the last thing, you put a lot of time behind it and sacrifice other areas of your life. You can get better faster because you'll have more leverage to make more mistakes than your competition. So I'm sure everything didn't go perfectly. What are some of the mistakes you've learned from along the way? Oh, yeah. I, my biggest one, and this is going to be funny because I was talking about moving fast, is actually sometimes moving too quickly. So it's, for instance, one mistake that I made on, and this is very specific, this doesn't apply to every business, but I think this can, um, this definitely applies just the philosophy of it. I was getting some results initially on Facebook ads and one of my product lines, and I was super excited. So instead of like waiting, really kind of doing my due diligence and figuring out exactly why it's working, I just kind of upped the budget and just was like, let's just, let's go, let's go. I was super excited, but I didn't realize that there was a lot going wrong there. And it ended up being that um, because I scaled too quickly, that wasn't the reason why, but because the ad itself and the product itself wasn't where it needed to be, um, I ended up definitely losing some money on that. That's just one mistake. Another mistake that I made is actually I initially when I was 15 didn't start my own company first. Um, my first move was to publish with a hybrid publishing company that live. they were across my street and they ended up kind of ripping me off. And I think that was another big thing that I realized too that although you need help in some cases, like I have an editor, I work with a cover designer, I work with people to help um, um, contractors to help what I do. You've got to be really uh, diligent in who you choose because they might rip you off. And I think uh, – I don't think. I did get ripped off my first time, and I, I'm pretty hopeful that I won't get ripped off again because I learned that time. And uh, I hope that you know everyone out there just – when you go to start a business, you're going to probably need help at some point uh, with something. Uh, and when you go and do that, make sure you do your due diligence in hiring because I didn't do that or at least do the diligence that I should have. And another big mistake, and this is my biggest one, was not keeping the consumer at the core. I think that if, if there's any advice I have, the biggest one for entrepreneurs is to make the consumer your religion. I was creating the product without the necessary feedback that I needed from readers, and those are my consumers. And I was creating a product that wasn't something that they would absolutely fall in love with. And I think that this is where it kind of gets funny. The only way you can do that is actually by getting your product out into the world first. Since I wrote in the dark, no one really read my books, then I would put them out into the world and then figure out what went wrong with them. And that's totally fine. Then I fix it up. And now, since I've been doing it for years, you know, I've gotten good at it. But I made a lot of mistakes in the meanwhile. And my advice to anyone would be out there, just try and find out what's wrong with your product by marketing it first. And through that, by getting your products into the hands of consumers early on, kind of like through a beta testing period, Figure out what you can improve and level up by making the consumer the core of everything. I didn't do that. And, um, you know, I definitely lost a little momentum in the beginning of my career on that. Um, but, I, you know, that's just the learning uh, mistakes and just the things that we go through. So you don't sound very programmed to me. And a lot of people do. Uh, and maybe it was easier because you started younger, but. Have you broken free from the mold society tells us to live by? Like we're we're pretty much told what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to think, and you're not doing that. What was what was key to that for you? Oh yeah, yeah. I think so. Breaking free from the mold is always tough. I think I went to, I grew up in a town where mostly everyone wears the same clothes, the same brands, um, and they 
they think the same way. Obviously, politically, this country's just divided absolutely in half. But, but you know, for going politics, these were people with very similar values, uh, very similar goals in life, right? Like the the standard thing at my high school was you get good grades, you go to a good college, you get a job, and you put some money away in a 401k, and that that's your life, right? And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but I just realized that that path, that standard traditional path of what we all work so hard for, I realized that that wasn't right for me in a pretty pivotal moment. I was at the end of my sophomore year of high school at that time, and I was going through a period where I'd come off of a year of school where I was working, you know, probably, you know, I was in school seven hours a day, at home doing homework four to five hours a day, and then between extracurriculars and writing, I was getting four or five hours of sleep a night. And it was just kind of miserable because I didn't feel like I was getting anywhere. But on paper, you know, my resume was all good. I had good grades and I just, you know, you would think like this kid should be happy. And I was being what I'll put in quotes here, successful by society standards. And I hit this point where I was at the end of my senior year going into, I'm sorry, sophomore year going into that summer I was working my summer job and the summer job even sucked. It was terrible. Um, and uh, it was just doing the beach chairs in like the 110 degree heat. And I'm all for hard labor, but there was just something about that where I'm like, I was so excited for this job. And then I realized like, I now have someone telling me what to do every day, waking up at 6 a.m. to, I was 5 a.m. waking up, starting at 6 a.m. there. And I know a lot of people listening, like you've had probably really, really tough jobs with really long hours. I've done that too. And I realized that like, you know, what are you working these 17 hour days for? I, I would do that. I'd pull crazy days to just try and save up money for the business. And although that was, that part was necessary to get the capital for the business, I just realized long term, there isn't any play here. Like long term, actually me showing up to, I'll say the stereotypical nine to five or, you know, nowadays it's not even that. It's nine to five plus, you know, three gig jobs on the side just to pay the bills. That, that whole pathway doesn't work for me and it doesn't work for most people. It's broken. And I realized that when I basically, I guess I had what my moment of like what a mental breakdown would be. I'm a pretty even keel, pretty, uh, got a pretty, my head's on pretty straight most of the times, but I just felt like in that moment, I can't keep doing this. I needed a different goal. I needed a different North star. And that North star could not be what society was telling me to do because it wasn't making me happy. And that's when I realized that getting all those grades, right? Even and now going to a good college, all that stuff, me working endlessly at all of that didn't actually do anything good for anyone but myself. And even that, I'm like, I'm not even happy with this, right? So like you you get a hundred on a test or an A in a test, you spend three hours, four hours doing it. What value did I just provide to the world there? Nothing. And then likewise, I think a lot of people, I felt that way at my job when I take out beach chairs to people and put them down and they sit in them. I'm providing value there and I'm getting value in return and I, I like that. But at the end of the day, that didn't actually make me feel anything. Anyone could step in that role and do it. I felt like a robot. And I think a lot of jobs in the modern economy are like that, where you could just put someone else in it and they could do just the same thing. You feel purposeless. You kind of feel useless. And that's how I was feeling. So I thought I'm a, I'm a competitive guy. I like competing. But this race, this this rat race that I'm competing in, when I win or if I win, whatever prize is at the end doesn't make me happy and most importantly, it doesn't do anything for the world around me. 
So that's when I realized I need to change. I need to live by a true purpose. I need to be guided not by North Star that society says, but a North Star that I feel with every fiber of my being. And that's where I went to story. For me, I've always been super passionate about using the power of story to tell the world to a better future. And that's when I realized this is what I need to do with my life. I need to you know, work as hard as I can to be able to provide subsistence for myself off of telling stories. And more importantly, hopefully with that subsistence, that value that I'm getting in return, I'm providing a ton of value to my readers and sparking conversations around problems that we're going to face that can move this world to a better future. And of course, telling entertaining stories while doing it. And that to me has been so, so, so much fun. And it's hard. And I say all this saying that like breaking free from the mold of society, basically, once you realize realize and hone in on a purpose and get something that makes you feel like, oh, wow, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And this is I'm now trying to help other people. This is going for a bigger thing, bigger than me. Then I think it's easy to break free from the mold of society. But I say that with caution because you can't just totally abandon society overnight and decide, hey, look. I'm breaking free from the mold. I'm doing my own thing. There's there's the game that you got to play and rules that you got to follow by not only the law, but going back to even just funding this business. If I just quit my job in that moment and decided like, I hate this job. I'm going to go start my own business. How do I go do that without any money? Right. So you got to kind of play the game. You got to do that job still. And no, it's not the best thing in the world. But, you know, in the long run, you're not going to be there. And that's kind of what kept me going for it is like you break free from the mold. Not overnight, but it takes a little while. You gotta work hard at it. And sometimes you gotta play some games that you don't wanna play, whether it's work, you know, dealing with bad coworkers, whether it's a really terrible boss, or just a company that's paying you way less than you deserve. I think most people's uh, jobs fall under one of those three buckets at times. It's just part of life. It doesn't have to be part of life forever, but until you can actually start something, I, I'm big on being entrepreneurial, but until you can at least achieve financial freedom you got to play some sort of game uh to be able to do it but i think when you keep the long-term perspective in mind it actually gives you a purpose to even wake up and play that game every day because then i felt like this job isn't just something that i'm doing because society's telling me it's something that i'm doing to support my dream and it gave even this mundane job that i didn't like a whole new purpose and it made me even happier when it's not like you can change your whole life overnight and you can't just break free from the mold overnight. But as I was embarking on this process, it made it much more enjoyable. And uh, that would be the biggest thing for me, just perspective wise. That's really what life's about. Just try and put into perspective what what society's telling you to do, how you feel about it. But then really just look at the life you want to live. And there's probably some dissonance there. And just slowly keep moving towards that life that you want to live and don't care what other people think about you. Don't care about anything else but just doing the next right thing. And when you have that North Star in front of you, it makes it a lot easier to do it. So one of the things I see in what you're doing, because it's not directly tied to somebody else, you have your own ship now to sail, is that you're insulated from kind of the macroeconomic uh, concept in the country. And What that means for maybe people aren't familiar with that term is the larger economy. And what it makes me think of is like back when I was in consulting, I consulted to entrepreneurs and independent business people. And occasionally I would get one as I started going through things with them and starting to pick their business apart. And they would say, well, things will get better when, when the economy picks up. And at that point I would drop them as a client before it even started. 
because I knew right there that I had a client who cared less about their business than I did. Because you can always do something in your own business. Can you talk about how maybe that is somewhat insulative of the larger economy? It's not that the bigger economy isn't going to have an effect on you. It's not that maybe things won't be better for you when the economy picks up or worse for you when it ticks down or in right business. It might even go up a little when economies tick down. My business is actually pretty good when the economy takes a hit because people start looking for solutions. But it doesn't matter. If you run your own ship, you have some insulation there. It's not completely separated, but can you talk about that a little bit? Oh, yeah. So I think when you're building your own business, I'd say the greatest value in it is the IP and the brand, which the brand is part of the IP, really. So those assets that you're building, that brand doesn't go away when the economy takes a downturn. So, and that's true for these bigger businesses too. I mean, if we were to get real about like, you know, the companies listed on the New York Stock Exchange, those executives aren't taking much of a big pay cut when things go down. Or even right now is a great example. Things are taking a downturn, but look at, you know, the, the indicators of the biggest companies in our country. They're doing really well. But the people who are doing well are the people who own the assets, right? I don't know if the employees are necessarily doing better. Um, and that's the biggest thing. Like if you own the asset, you, you have the advantage at the end of the day. And owning a own business is much better than owning, first of all, you know, if you own real estate, when anything takes a downturn, it gets a hit automatically. Real estate's great to own, great thing to diversify in. If you own stocks, um, great as well, but you don't actually control unless you own 20% of a company, right? Owning the company. Like at that point, you don't have any control over where it's going during a downturn, but you own your own company, whether it's, you know, does $5,000 revenue a year or, you know, $5 million revenue a year, you could control where that ship goes. And frankly, the needs that people have when the economy goes down doesn't really change. If anything, new needs come up. There's new opportunities for your business to move into. I don't think there's less opportunity. People will have less capital to spend. So as you said, it's not going to be like a windfall for your business all the time. But in the same vein, that need and that service that your business provides still is there. Now, of course, this is a really weird time where you own your own restaurant business and for a long time there, you know, you were forced to be shut down, which this, this, this is an anomaly uh, in so many instances, but in traditional macroeconomic woes, the traditional market crash, still all these services get to function in the same capacity they did before, just cash flow looks a little bit different. But at the end of the day, the service is still there. The service still needs to be provided. So you're going to still exist. You're still going to have your business. You don't have to worry about losing your job. No one's there to take it away from you. Of course, your income might get hurt a little bit, but you know, we all have to take some sort of, you know, hit in the short term. In the long run, it won't, it's going to insulate you from everything because no one can take it away from you, but yourself. If you mismanage your business, it could go under if your competition beats you. But you know, I would argue that during times of macroeconomic rows when a lot of businesses, whether they're small or large, kind of take a step back, if you can kind of lean into it and kind of, you know, eat when everyone else is fearful, then you'll even get a step ahead and just further insulate yourself from further crashes. And I think that you can only have that kind of power if you're an entrepreneur or at least own a large portion of a business, which in that sense, it kind of does make you an entrepreneur. So, yeah. So, so, what what do you see? Because your your work in your books anyway kind of revolves around apocalyptic scenarios. What do you think the apocalyptic scenarios are that 
are most likely to happen with our lifetimes are in any way realistic or potentially something that we might actually see happen? Yeah. Well, I'll first say that I think that the apocalypse is inevitable. Like at some point, I, I personally think that prepping and just learning survival skills at a micro level, like being able to take care of yourself when, you know, things, things hit the fan, uh, is kind of just logical because I think as an intelligent species, humanity, our entropy moves towards total destruction. So if we can just kick the can down the road for another generation and stop us from basically completely destroying the world, that's pretty successful. We did a good job, but of course, you know, that might not happen. And I really hope part of the reason why I write apocalyptic books is really to try and spark conversations about future problems to keep kicking that can down the road so that this generation and the few generations beyond us are best set up to literally just continue surviving. But obviously that's never a guarantee. And I think the biggest fears that I have, I shouldn't say the word fear, but the biggest things uh, that I think could go wrong in the future and that are most likely to happen are stuff to that deal with technology. I think technology is moving so quickly at a rate that as humans, our brains aren't even designed to be able to deal with it. Frankly, we haven't even really caught up evolutionary, uh, like on an evolutionary perspective to being able to live in agricultural societies. Never mind, you know, living in societies that are fully industrialized now with phones and soon those phones are going to have chips that go inside of us. And that's all some, it's cool stuff. But at the same time, we are not made to live in this kind of world. We're really made at our core to be hunter gatherers. So when I look at what could possibly go wrong in the future, specifically, I have the most apprehension about the atomic precise manufacturing revolution, which not to completely nerd out, but it's next industrial revolution coming that deals with quantum physics. It has the potential to do so much good for humanity, just like the information revolution, so much good. And uh, a book by uh, Eric Drexler uh, called Radical Abundance kind of delves into that deeper. It's a nonfiction book. And that book actually inspired uh, the current series I'm writing and publishing, uh, World Gone Mad, which deals with this secret government technology that once it's released from a lab, it basically has the ability to create any material at any quantity. Of course, it's fiction, so I take it a little bit step further than reality because to me that's what's fun, bending reality and really sparking conversation that way. But in all truth, like we're going to have technologies that are radically able to change even how we conceive of material wealth and how we conceive of human nature when you put you know computer chips in our bodies and we become cyborgs. To me, although that sounds really far off, that is definitely within most of our lifetimes, in the next 20 to 30 years. And to me, that stuff is going to, we think today we have a problem, that today we're divided as a society, that today, oh, you know, we have, you know, all these technologies that are, you know, enroaching on us, whether it's, you know, the algorithm of Google or the algorithm of Facebook that are kind of messing things up. We just have to get ready for the future because they're going to get exponentially more powerful. And if we can't figure out as a society, um, both as individuals and just macro, how to be able to handle this, I have a feeling that, you know, either we're going to have a small group of people use it for their own um, their own economic gain, which is kind of more the route that takes place in in the World Gone Mad series that I wrote, or uh, you know a totally different route, which is just it just gets into the hands of kind of like a lone wolf, and it's misused or some sort of corporate dystopia that we enter. I really hope that doesn't happen, but when I look at it, that's the most likely scenario, uh, and when you combine it with 
um, you know, we're dealing with problems of environmental degradation, when we're dealing with problems of massive wealth inequality, it just seems like you throw the flame or of, you throw the fuel of technology onto the fire and it just becomes an untenable flame that we aren't able to deal with. And I just hope that, you know, me and a lot of other futurist thinkers and people who are writing similar things can just spark conversations so that we can have a general awareness about where we're headed in the future in hopes that we can, you know, put in systems and put in roadblocks in our society to try and prevent that from happening. Uh, I have a lot of hope in the future, and my personal belief is that story is the answer in getting us there. But I, you know, sometimes it's easy to look at the world and feel hopeless. And for a long time, I did feel that way. But story is the one thing that kind of made me feel like maybe we can get through this because if we can all empathize with what other characters are going through who are very similar to us in a scenario that none of us would ever want to be in, then maybe we can finally feel empowered to try and come together in this country and come together as this world and really try and prevent these things from happening. So yeah, in short, technology is the thing that I'm most worried about in terms of apocalyptic scenarios. There's virtually an unlimited ways, but atomic precise manufacturing revolution is the one that I've got my eyes on. Gotcha, man. So, um, when you're talking about that, what, what I find interesting is the concept that eventually, you know, we will be dealing with people being implanted with technology and what have you. People are really big on right now what Google can do or what Facebook can do. But let's be honest, you choose to use Google. You choose to use Facebook. There are alternatives. Right? Yes. We, we, we have alternatives to that. Once something is attached to you and made part of you, you don't have that choice anymore, and we're. I think you have this transitional technology between something like a Google or a Facebook and something like a implanted device is a cell phone, which we shouldn't oh. even call cell phones anymore. We should call them pocket computers because that's what they are. And I was just reading this thing about how this one university said they'll suspend students if they go more than four and a half miles from the center of the campus, and this is all tracked by their phones with an app on it. And I'm thinking, geez, so these kids aren't smart enough to just leave their phone in their room? Like, they can't function without their phone? Right? Like, I mean, would that be the first thing you yeah. do? And I thought, you know what? Some of them will, but a lot of them really, like, cannot be away from the phone. And I'm not a biblical guy, but I, I often think that um, ancient literature tends to be prophetic no matter what. Um, there, of course, is all the talk about the mark of the beast. So, you know, have you ever thought about the fact, and as a writer, maybe you do something with this someday, um, the, the, the whole concept of the mark of the beast being that no man could buy or sell without it, and it was either on the right hand or the forehead. And I just, when I hear that, I just think of people walking around gazing at their phones, holding them in their right hand. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> we're on the forehead, there. right? Up, I mean, come on. We're already there, basically. Yeah. We really are. I mean, I, I don't. I just know most people who are uh, my around my age, young people who. I mean, it's weird that to say this, but it's true. Like, I don't know a world without the internet at all. I don't know a world without the internet. My my mom wouldn't let me get a phone until I was in middle school, which was late. I knew people who had cell phones as early as kindergarten that I was going to school with. So these are kids who like from you know from cradle to now. They don't know a world without these things at their hips, and they're they're extremely addictive devices. Um, I think the same is true for lots of uh, you know of the new media, whether it's video games, social media. I really try and stay away from it, and that would be another big tip to entrepreneurs: just stay away from all that stuff. But on the on the mark of just you know kind of turning into a world in which 
we live through our phones and can't live throughout them, we are already there in such a big way. I mean, the control that Apple, Google, and Facebook have over our daily lives is almost unfathomable because it's happened very fast. Like within a decade time, they've really just enroached into everything. And it's what my biggest worry, kind of going what you were saying, right now we have the power as you know, a general populace to reform, uh, you know, the systems, whether it's these companies putting pressure on the companies, or frankly, there's a lot of government policy that isn't helping the case of the common man. And with any of this stuff, we still have the power to really make those changes. It's not easy to try and tackle these behemoths, but we we can. But as you said, once these technologies go into our bodies, and also in tandem, as these companies continue to gain more and more and more wealth through basically anti-capitalistic monopolies, I'm a capitalist. I'm not sure I love capitalism. I don't think they're following capitalism all the time. I think that's where we get some really big issues where we now have these companies and these, frankly, governments that are too powerful to stop. And they can basically do whatever we want. And then when the people don't have time or don't really have the power to rise up, that's when we're finally all going to wake up. That's at least the bad scenario. We finally wake up after it's too late. We've already got the chips inside of us. We already got whatever it is that kind of takes away our personal liberties, whereas you know, in, in my world, in my hopeful future, we kind of reform things before it gets there. And and that's that's my hope. But I do think that with phones, at least we are kind of are there. And it's it's so funny that colleges can I didn't, I didn't hear that policy. That's yeah, just that's so funny. It was, yeah. it was some you know, obscure university or something, but it was still like, really? Like, you know, and I, you know, people say, well, what do I do about them tracking my cell phone? I'm like, well, you know, don't leave it at home, leave it at home. And like, well, what if somebody needs to get in touch with me? Or I need to get somebody. Okay, so take your phone, turn it off, throw it in an ammo can in your car. You ain't tracking nothing that way. You know, you can track it when it's off. They say, well, you ain't tracking it when it's in an ammo can. What if somebody calls you? I don't know. Get a burner phone. Like, can you not think? That's how you, you get to the point where you're like, can, do I really need to do this for you? Right? Like, get an old school freaking pager and let somebody page you if you need to call them. Like, can you not figure this out? And then you realize, no, they can't. Well, I think they can figure it out. I think it's more. What I mean by have... no, they can't. It's not they don't have the ability, but they ha- they are in a mental state where yes. until that state is broken, they can't do it. They, you, you know, you, you say they can't think, and, and people think, well, no, everybody can think. No, they can, but they can't. You see what I mean? Well, it's a drug, right? It's an addiction. Yeah. Like you, you don't. It's like we're giving we're giving crack to people. It, it more functions like cocaine, but either way, we're giving these slot machines to people that are in their pockets with zero general awareness of how they actually work and the effects on the mind we're still learning them now but i think all the research that's coming out is pointing to the fact of like oh this stuff's pretty scary and that's why the same people who know the most about it the silicon valley uh tech people who are running all these technologies send their kids to elite private schools where they don't use any technology uh if there's nothing scary it's that uh that they don't want their kids near it and i don't you know i'm not trying to give any parenting advice i'm not a parent won't be anytime soon but i i will just say as individuals we should probably have a little bit more awareness of like, okay, this phone in my pocket is is a tool that's super powerful and does a lot of good, but we really have to manage it. And if we can't step away from it for a couple hours to like, you know, go for a walk somewhere, you know, to potentially not be tracked if we know we're being tracked, if we can't like, you know, use our free will to kind of hamper that process, then I think we're entering a era that's pretty scary. And as you mentioned, I guess we're here today. Yeah. I, I agree. Now, you're an author, and I think with 
books, I think with movies, I think with audio, when you tell stories, you enable people to conceive of a future and therefore prepare for it better. What do you, what do you think actually is in the concept of a story that opens up the mind and allows people to perceive of something potentially happening and then uh, think ahead and, 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 and prepare for it, even if it's not exactly what the story says, but just the entire kind of opening the mind up. It's like we were just saying, they can't think, but all of a sudden maybe they can. Oh, yeah. I mean that's exactly what that process of opening up your mind, preparing for the future is exactly what like post-apocalyptic survival fiction does, which is me and a bunch of other authors write in that subgenre. I have a, a huge passion for it. And I think that the whole opening up your mind is something that's, you know, that's embedded into every story. The preparing you for the future, that's more unique to this subset of stories, to apocalyptic stories or at least futuristic stories. Um, and, and that lends it to itself pretty easy. Obviously, like futuristic stories will hopefully prepare you for it, at least if it's written with that intention, which on my end it is. However, opening up your mind, that's the cool thing that stories can do. And I think when I got into this whole business, I came into it during a time where I was just getting to the age where I was having sort of a general awareness of the world around me, and I was seeing a world which was extremely, extremely divided, and it still is. If anything, it's worse than it was a couple of years ago, which saddens me because when I look at most Americans, we're, we're all good people who actually face very similar problems that um, I think there's a few systems, whether it's traditional media, a lot of different outlets that just try and divide us. We all really probably think very close to the same and have very similar issues, especially like if you were to compare us to – if you were to go to Thailand, and I'm not picking on – like Thailand I think is a beautiful country. But like there's a much bigger differences between like the average American and them versus like you know two Americans in this country, although we're an extremely diverse country in all sorts of facets. That's beautiful. But when I saw that, I realized we have a huge problem here. We have a country that's awesome, that's kind of allowing itself to not be as awesome as it could be. And that, to me, is the biggest thing. Like, we should just try and always strive to be better. And I thought, how can we do this? Well, we got to bring people together. That's why my motto is, together we are boundless. And I truly believe that. If together we can join something, together we can join behind a cause and a mission to propel this world a better future, we can do it. And that's when I started studying, how do we bring people together? Because clearly... Everything that these politicians are doing, everything that the media is doing aren't doing that. I've kind of found out they're probably intentionally driving us apart. But either way, I knew that I needed to take an approach that would be able to wrap in everyone. I wanted anyone and everyone to be able to consume my content and be able to open up their mind and hopefully be able to just, again, bring conversations. I wanted everyone into the conversation, propel us to a better future because it doesn't do me any good if only Republicans or only, you know – liberals either end it doesn't do me any good if only one person is interested in this kind of content so i thought to it a good book everyone reads a good book and i thought i figured why so i started looking into it and what's super cool about stories and i think you've even touched on this on your podcast but it's it's an evolutionary tactic that we have used to dispel knowledge among generations for thousands and thousands of years it's the best way to consume knowledge it's the best way to learn and what's really cool about stories is that when done correctly, when it's a great story, there's extremely strong characters that hopefully you could connect to at an emotional level and has a really strong emotional resonance with the reader. And I really seek to create characters from my own life, really. I can get into detailed stories about like how my main character is inspired by people in my life that I've seen struggle. And I take their struggles, struggles that are indicative of the struggles and the problems that 
majority of the people in this world are facing and I put it into a character and say, now this person facing these problems is in this future world. But what's so cool is when you actually connect with someone emotionally like that, with the written word specifically is the most powerful, you can really get a window into their minds. And when you get a window into their minds, you realize something. What's going on inside this character's mind isn't too different from what's going on in my mind. In fact, I really care about this character and I want to see what's going to happen to them. And that just gets you continuing reading the story and learning more about this character and learning more about the world. And by the time you get to it, you've spent 30 or 40 hours with the character. You've absolutely loved it. At least that's the goal. And then you've now not only seen a window into their mind and empathize with them. Empathy is the huge key here. Story allows us to empathize with others. But then through putting yourself in their shoes, you get to experience what they went through. And at least my goal is to go, I don't want you experiencing what they went through. So why don't we come together and try and prevent that? That That's how I approach it. And the big thing is that story enables empathy unlike any other tool. And the one thing we need right now more than anything in our world is empathy. That's what can bring us together. And story is the rocket fuel that'll get us there. Got you. Um, what do you believe is the future for our education system? I've been talking about this a lot. The impacts of COVID on K-12 and higher education, we kind of talked about that a little bit already. It seems, the way I've just described it is it's a, a vast sucking opening hole that will never go away. Like the system has certain things that are useful for certain students that, 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 that makes sense. If you're going to be a doctor, I kind of want you to go to a university. I really do. But like yeah. my, my grandson is excelling at home-based education. I mean, it, it's unbelievable how fast and how much he's learning. What do you think this has all done to education? Because, you know, you're closer to it than me. I'm ancient as far as that system goes. Oh, well, no, you're, you're close to it in a different way. I have yeah. – I'm, I'm perspective from a student, and I think from a student perspective, what this has done is just very clearly demonstrated something that I think most kids know, which is that, yeah, online is – a more efficient way to learn. I, I won't say it's superior to in-person, but it's certainly more efficient and cost-effective. And honestly, with the current tools, it's very, very close to being the same. I think when you talk about education, there's actually, I divide it up into three kind of topics. You've got higher education, you've got, teen, we typically say K through 12, but I divide it. I think it's a different conversation when you consider teenagers and up, and then it's a different conversation, teenagers and down. And I think these would be the big effects on each. So for University, I'll start there because that's where I'm going into. I think that university for the last 70 years has been the great equalizer, the great tool of social mobility in the United States. And this is true for all classes and all races. It helps uplift people. And that's really freaking awesome. It's awesome. Like it's great that university has the power to do that. The problem is when university becomes unex you know, expensive and inaccessible to most people and also the benefits of it don't really – they're not worth the investment to most people either, then what have we done? We've kind of destroyed this institution, this whole industry that really was a great lubricant to lower and middle class students to you know moving up a rung and, again, achieving the American dream, which is – it's still alive today. It's just – it's hurting. And I think university and the, uh, the higher education system is a great way to fix it. How we do that? So there's two things I think when you look at it. There's the private university system and there's the public university system. When um, I, you probably mentioned this, but I, I'm going to a, a private university in the Northeast, uh, specifically in Cambridge. I don't like to say the name, but I'm going to Harvard. So <laughs> that university, I you know, 
what I'll say about them and my experience with what I know about that those schools is that the top eight or ten brand name schools in this country are overall outperforming the entire world. And why that is, if you look at it, the only difference, it's not because we have teachers that are 10 times smarter or even students that are 10 times smarter. It's run in a different way where they've had years to build up these endowments. They have all this funding privately and they really have autonomy. So the government doesn't really go near these um, schools. There's These are flawed institutions that also really do exist to permeate the existing social structures. And most of the kids who are let in don't come from backgrounds like me. I come from just your typical middle class background. They're not usually it's from the upper class. So those are the big my critique of those institutions. But overall, they do a lot of good for society because they're really producing uh, what I'll call as high impact individuals. That's who's coming out of there. The people who are leading, like again, when you think of the Jeff Bezoses of the world, the Bill Gates, the Mark Zuckerbergs, although they're leading these tech companies that are doing some not so good stuff, I'd rather them be in America rather than somewhere else because there is some benefit, at least the tax basis here. And also the innovation has done definitely a lot of good. So that's where I go. There's a benefit to those institutions. I don't know if we touch them too much. And I, I'm saying, obviously, I'm saying mentioning my perspective on that because I am am biased. I'm going to one of those institutions. But I, you know, there, there is reform there, but I don't know if this is going to affect their model that much because they're really elite institutions based off of brand. This is the problem. Every other higher education to, to every other higher education institution has basically tried to chase them and said, if they charge X amount a year per tuition, well, we can charge basically the same because we basically have the same product. That's kind of true, but the brand name is not there. So now you have all these schools that are typically there for middle class and, you know, Lower class students to really just have these amazing opportunities are crushing them in student debt. That doesn't make any sense. And they're bloated by these, you know, immense administrative budgets to basically, you know, college is now keeping up with the Joneses. And that's it's stupid. It shouldn't be that college is public servants. It's not trying to uh, um, really we shouldn't be competing about stuff that doesn't really do anything to material the rise, the lifestyle and quality of students post-graduation and that's frankly what colleges have done for the last 40 years so i think COVID's going to be awesome for colleges because it's going to really just force them to wake up and go we can't spend money on all this stuff that doesn't matter and that doesn't really help our students and we now need to start again taking our funds and really investing it into developing high skill high impact jobs for our students that can go on to the workforce because that's still what colleges exist for and ultimately with that we can lower the cost of college too using online tools because most people who go to college are not. A lot of ways they can't do what you're saying though under the current system. It's not possible that right because the government the accreditation. Involved. So the way this all works this is the, the, the system of accreditation, and curriculums are not accredited. Places are, schools are, institutions are accredited, and some of the rules for accreditation are specifically designed to guild out competition, and they include things like the size of your library, the number of staff who must have gone to a specific type of institution. There's, there's a tremendous amount of things that involve accreditation that include things like sports programs. Like some of the things you're talking about cutting, you can literally, after an institution is a certain size and student body, lose your accreditation if you do not have them. The size of a library. Like, this is all stuff you, you, there's probably no reason for you to know yet. And I didn't know this a year ago. But what that does is that opens up the, the, the goodie box that it comes from student loans. So these institutions have right. all these things in place so that a, a young man like you 
can go out and get a loan to go to their school. So when they want to grow, all they do is lower their admission standards and grow. And that's all that yeah. they have to do. And this is a, a, a fake system, but it gilds out accreditation. And it doesn't matter if the school's for-profit or not-for-profit. In reality, it, it still gilds out that ability for competition. And the right, only yeah. way that can reform is either employers have to stop pretending to care about accreditation, right, or you have to change what it means to be accredited. I think the, the latter is probably more likely. I, I just think employers changing – Accreditation does serve a purpose because at the end of the day, with with the school being like you were saying about the doctor, like, you know, being accredited is a good thing. It's kind of just a barometer overall. Um, my mom works for a company that deals with the higher education, sells software to them. So it, accreditation, from my view, isn't necessarily a bad thing, but I think it's been used as a tool to it's not accreditation now isn't necessarily just about what's best for the student and what's best for their educational and uh career futures it's it's more just again like you said ways to weed out competition there the, i guess the way to deregulate college would be to lower almost not lower the accreditation standards but all that stuff like you said the administrators the sports all that stuff that you don't necessarily need if it's not benefiting the student body that stuff should be taken out but the accreditations around the actual curriculum probably makes sense to stay there just, just because for employers they'll want to know that their students learned at least this X baseline of stuff. And for so schools, why do you it's need accreditation? Become... Why do you need an accreditation body that we think of in, in this current form to do that? Why is it not possible to have multiple independent certifi certifying bodies that can do that? What, what, what does the word itself in a rigid system that has only a limited number of people, because this is all regional, it's regionally based, it's oversaw by government. Yep. What, what possible thing does that bring to the table that any third-party certification would not bring to the table. No, of course third-party could do it. We'll just we'll still have to have another, you know, exactly. A third-party could easily do it and would actually probably do it in a much less corrupt manner. And I would argue that's probably the best solution, to still have accreditation exist in some sort of form but change the institution doing it. That's probably the solution because, again, when you do that, it can enable more online because I think online is the future for higher ed. That's what's going to allow it to reach greater scale, greater numbers of students, educate more people, going to you know, be able to have more people enter the high-skilled labor force, and ultimately, it's going to be able to provide better education at a cheaper cost to more people. We just need to open up the floodgate that allows that to do so, and you mentioned accreditation. That's the big thing stopping it, and I, I would agree with you. I think um, doing a third-party accreditation system would make sense. Uh, I just... Again, like we have to all come together as you know a, a collective public and go, we demand this right for our children and for the current students. And I think that would be a great option, demanding that kind of reform. I think for the edu higher education system and for the future uh, students who are on average having thirty thousand dollars in debt plus each year um, when they come out of school, that that needs to happen. Got you, man. So, um, How do you think that these forms, reforms can be instituted at the individual level, like to set up our children for success? Because a yeah. lot of this stuff, you're young, you're optimistic, and you, it sounds like you believe that some of this shit's going to change. I, I don't. I, I really don't. I think that what will happen is the system will be, become incredibly crippled by what's going to happen. It will reform itself into a smaller version of itself, and that none of this is going to yeah. change. So the individual has to take action. Oh, I agree. I mean, at the end of the day, that's really all that we have control over. Like, yeah, we can debate the macro system 
it needs to change a lot. I think we both agree on the changes that need to be made, but I, I like to be a little bit more optimistic. But uh, if history points to anything, it's probably that you're right. So I think that uh, as as individuals, I think first of all, it starts when the kids are young. So getting back to like the the first kind of era, era area of school, when kids are young, I think before high school. It really depends on the situation of the parents. I think if you have one parent home with the kid in school or you can do a co-op with a group of kids, online school actually might make more sense for that age group than traditional public schooling. I do think it's very important that kids are you know, involved in sports or arts or something, some extracurricular activity that they are – you know, really just being with kids. Cause I just know like at that age, it's so important to just get those kinds of experiences socially. Like uh, frankly, like we don't like when kids get made fun of, but like to get made fun of to, to see how like society kind of operates. Cause you know, little kids don't operate too much different from adults. I think we see that it's the, the psychology is still the same. Now I think that online is going to actually could potentially open up better teachers into lower income areas and lower income schools that need the most help. And it could really be a good thing. Of course, we would need a way to, at the young age, still kids need to be overseen a little bit because my, my brother works in uh, the uh, day, daycare industry and uh, those kids do need someone overlooking it. But again, he's actually works for a private business that uh, has now with COVID, uh, they're doing some stuff where the kids are coming in during the day and that's where they're able to go take online classes it's actually kind of cool. I like it. I think things like that could be a solution. Ultimately, choice, though, is what matters. So it's figuring out what works best for you and your kid. And I think that choices like that online might make a lot more sense for the young kid instead of just throwing them into the public education system. Once you get to high school, I actually would strongly recommend online. This is why. Given my experience as, uh, you know, the once you get to the upper rungs of the secondary education system, I... I think it's honestly a lot of BS that it's – look, I've, I took some great classes, but you're spending so much time on stuff that doesn't matter, and it's six hours a day in school when I guarantee you most kids could learn what's going on in school in those six hours and two hours. And that just frees up more time for students to pursue the entrepreneurial endeavors that I've gone down to pursue just figuring out what you want to do because, I mean, I'm lucky in the sense that I've kind of figured out my passion pretty early on. A lot of people, it takes a while to really figure out what makes you tick. Kids don't even get the chance to explore it, and it, that's purpose, right? It's purposefully done because if kids are just getting three hours, four hours of sleep, working you know, on all this stuff that teachers throw at them, then they don't get a chance to figure out what they do, and they just follow down the path of society, which is becoming you know, em- employees, which I'm not, and I'm not trying to rank on that, but I think we're seeing how that system has, has its shortcomings. So I, I think online is a really great way. Um, for high school students to do that. And my state personally offers like a free online public school. So you can just take the class online for free. Um, I'm in South Carolina and I think, uh, I don't know the actual system in all the other states, but they've got to move quickly to do things like that because it just makes sense. And then that's when you start to reevaluate the conversation around higher education because a lot of students either don't have the means to go, but then it's kind of like, oh, there's no other option but to maybe like go to community colleges where most people still go. Community college is great. It's much cheaper. But still, even then, community college might not be worth it because if you had time in high school to explore a bunch of your different passions and figure out really where your path wants to go, you know, I would encourage kids to go down a more entrepreneurial route where they don't necessarily need university. And um, I was actually going down the same route where I wasn't necessarily going to go. Um, I ultimately decided that, you know, 
this route would be good for the near future for me with everything going on and just as a, a hedge. But that's my very specific individual scenario. And I, I think I would just advise more people to think outside of the box and to give your kids more educational freedom too because I think um, – as long as you're monitoring the addictions of your kids, I, I hate to say that, but like as long as they're not on Xbox all day long, on you know playing all these things that I, I think are time sucks, I think kids really can explore the world, and I really do think that the public education system blocks kids in a way that isn't always beneficial, especially as you get to be a teenager. So that would be my advice to families: figure out how you can give your kid the most educational freedom in the least amount of time. I, I know we like to think like kids need to be busy all the time. I, I don't think that because I know what being really busy has done to me. It's just an extreme lack of sleep and unhappiness, and I don't think kids should be feeling that, not during times when they should be exploring the world and figuring out their place in it. Yeah, I, what I would add to it is if you're, if you're, when, you're, when your kid gets to the point where they want to go on to – post-secondary education, what we think of as, as university, but it's any education after K-12. Go where you belong for what you want. And, and that's almost heresy today because we have pounded into young people's brains since I was a young person. Everybody should go to college. Uh, education is priceless. Those two things are totally different, and while the second one is true, it has nothing to do with the first one. An education is priceless is only true if the education is valuable to the person receiving it for their life goals. So right now, for instance, if you wanted a, a career in computers and coding and development, you can go to Udacity. You can take a course that when you're done with it, if you do well in it, um, you're almost guaranteed a job with a company like Google. You can do that in six months if you have any kind of a, a, a initial uh, background in it at all, any type of understanding. If a person wants that path, even if they want to go to college, that is a better path because that person can get a job, get experience, and go to college and largely get an employer to fund it. There are people that are coming out of trade schools on pipe fitting and welding making 80K within their second year. Yep, yeah. And if that person is happier... In a welding mask, in a T-shirt, and overalls, they don't belong taking gender studies courses at Columbia. <laughs> yeah, right? no, they no. don't. And, and that doesn't mean that nobody should go to Columbia. And what we've done is we've made it almost a sin to tell a young person when they're you know in that 10th, 11th, 12th grade range, hey, figure out what you want, and it might not be college. Because one of the reasons we have all the problems we do is we've overstuffed the universities. There's too many universities. Yep. They're too big, and there's too many students. They don't belong there. I, I'm a person. I was smart. I could have went to college. I didn't want to, and it was, wasn't right for me. I know people I went to school with that went to college. They should not have gone because they, they are too stupid. There are people that are too stupid to do university work. I'm sorry. It doesn't mean that they're actually stupid. It means they're academically not suited for that path. So when I say stupid, I'm being very broad because I oh, know yeah. like some of these people that are geniuses at things – but they are not inclined to the type of academic rigor necessary to be successful in even, you know, Joe Spooty Community College. They're just not. They were miserable in high school. They barely got through it. They got reasonable grades because they had somebody put a foot in their ass the entire time. They went off to college. All they got was debt and dropped out. Yep. Right? And that's a, that's a disaster. So the only way to kind of take responsibility at the individual level is to actually do that. 
And I don't know if you, how much of my show you've listened to, but I had a guy named Matt Powers. He was a teacher at a charter school, and he almost got fired. And all he did is he took students, I think they were around 10th grade students, and said, figure out you know, what you want to do and the degree you need for it. So they all did that. And even if he said, if you can't figure something out, pick something, because if you don't pick something in the next two days, I'm going to give you something. So they did. And they came back in. He taught them how to use Excel, and he said, I want you to go out and figure out how much it's going to cost you to get the education to do the thing you've picked and what the starting salary is and how long it's going to take you to repay your student loans. That exercise yeah. almost got him fired. Wow. Because wow. a whole bunch of those kids went, this yeah. education will never pay for itself. That's where we're at today. That's where we're at today. And you're going to fire a teacher for ex not telling a kid that, empowering them yeah. to do math and look into the future and model their revenue against their expenses. That's worth firing a teacher for. And that's why I say I do not think the system can be reformed. Oh, I, yeah, that's why, I mean, I, again, like uh, going to a more online route just kind of makes sense given everything. And also, like, I mean, the, talking about the finances, you don't learn any finances really unless you're going into finance in college, um, which is not personal finance. Uh, you know, you don't learn personal finance, probably arguably one of the most, if not the most important skill in just functioning as a human being in modern society. You don't learn that with a period there. Meanwhile, like, on YouTube, there's actually really great people on YouTube. That's where I learned personal finance, especially mm -hmm. with being able to run my business. That's where I learned it all on YouTube and straight up like none of it was covered in school. Meanwhile, all of it, everything I ever need is for free online. And also it's not like it took forever to learn. Like we're talking like, you know, a couple hours of just sitting down watching it. You can get a really good idea of what you need to do. And of course you can dive deep into it. I personally did, but yeah, no, you're certainly right. Like there's, we have a system in which we're not giving kids options. We are just, basically pushing them along like sheep. And I think another really big thing I'm a proponent of as well is taking a gap year, and it could be even more than a year. I took a gap year, truly, to figure out what's best for me, truly pursue this business, pursue that passion. And I think there's a huge stigma around it. Like there was only a few people. I went to high school of over a 1,000 people per grade. There was only a few people in my grade who took one, like less than 1% who took a gap year. I think yeah. this year it might be different because of the whole situation well, with COVID. Well, 25% of the first-year students at Harvard Business have deferred. Yeah, I, I think 20% of undergraduates at my school have deferred as well. But that version of a gap year right now, I mean, this is such a weird world. Like, they weren't going into the – and I hope they do take advantage of it because it's a great asset that they have that time. But I, I do think that parents should encourage and be open-minded with their children about, hey, look, you're only – once you graduate high school – You're either a late teenager, right, in that range. You're young. You're so young in the grand scheme of things. And you've got so much time. And now, it's not time to waste, but that's precisely what going to university might do if you're not pursuing the correct path. And again, university is great for a lot of people, but if you don't, if you're not starting in on the right, you know, if you're not going down the right path, you're just tossing out money each day. And I would recommend, like, take a year, take even three or four years. It doesn't matter. Like just explore the world. You can go back to your education later. You, you really can. There's no rush. If you figure out you're 35 years old and you figure out, you know what? I found a passion for this. Trust me, college will let you in. You know I mean? You can, you can get into college at any age. I don't think there's a rush. We're rushing these kids. And I'm not saying that, you know, you can't become responsible adults. No, I think once you're, you know, once you graduate high school, you take, take a gap year, you know, let, let's get a taste of the real world. But that's the thing. Like college is not kids becoming responsible adults. The traditional college experience is, is kids getting drunk every Friday night and partying and not doing – it's the opposite of being responsible. And I, I'm not saying like there isn't a place in life for that, but at the same time, 
you know, the best thing that these kids can do is really just figure out by getting their hands dirty through practice and through some trial and error, but with the guardrails of you're a young person who doesn't, you know, probably doesn't have a family uh, to support and, you know, you have some guardrails in society to be able to take some risks. And if you mess up, you can always go back to college later. You can always go down a different path later. Uh, it just requires having more of an open mind. And frankly, for the parents, not using your kid's education as another purse to throw around to your friends. Uh, yeah. You know, parents, and it's, yeah. it's disgusting. Absolutely it is. The kid, boys off at school is is great bragging rights in our society. Um, and, and I would say this about a gap year, too. There is a wide variance in age in graduates because there's as much as a year. And a year when you're an old guy like me is not very different. A year when you're 17 versus 18 or 18 versus 19 is a tremendous difference for not everybody, but for many people in emotional maturity. Yes. And if you're like me, so I was like, if I would have been born one day, literally one day earlier, I would have started school the next year. I was as young as you could be at the time for what they had set the standard of and be in my grade. So I was the youngest kid in every class I was ever in. So when I graduated, I was 17. And I wasn't 17 about to be like 18 tomorrow. I had you know like a quarter of a year left before I was even going to be 18 years old. I went in the military, and that was probably a good decision for me. But when I look back at it, I think I probably didn't even have any business going in the military at 17. I, I had no home life and had to figure out something to do with myself, so it wasn't out. Uh, but yeah. had I had a stable home life, I probably didn't belong in the military at 17. I, I definitely didn't belong in college at just barely turning 18 by the time I would have started college. A gap year for either would have probably been better in a – because I always say it depends, right? So, like, it depends. Like, yeah. being 17 and homeless or being 17 in the Army, the Army was a good choice, right? And directionless. Choice, yeah. But had I had a, a more conventional home life, it probably would have made a lot of sense to, like, figure out what I wanted to do. Now, my only concern for kids doing the gap year thing this year is, like, traditionally would be, you know, go backpacking in Europe or something. Like, a lot of the things that kids would do in a gap year – are kind of out. Now, if they want to hit the grindstone like you and set up a business, what a great thing to do. I'd also say another thing is when you're going to the level of university that you're about to attend, there's as much value in the relationships you will form in the next four years as there is to the education you will get. There is yeah. a certain value in a Harvard, a Yale, a Princeton you see what I'm saying, Columbia, right? Like, there are lifelong relationships of people that will be connected to opportunity. And you will not, there are ways into those clubs otherwise, but there's no better ways, right? And when you do find yeah. a connection like that, you find one. When you get, when you're an outsider, you find one, and then maybe you get access to their network. When you're in that network, you have that. So someone that's already got a publishing business, got their head where you are, you will get, financially, I would guess, you will reap more rewards from the network you become part of than you will from the education you get. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's you're 1,000% uh, correct on that. That's 
that's my thinking going in, but it's also my individual thinking for my individual situation. I think, I think having a, a dogma in society that we apply to almost everyone uh, is frankly just dumb in any scenario. And I think like we're seeing the kind of really bad effects of that when it comes to having some sort of dogma that each kid needs to follow in terms of their educational and career futures. And I think we're seeing like, oh, wow, like a lot of kids are being left out, not getting the benefits of this that they were promised and really not living happy lives. And I think um, you mentioned gap gap year, like through the gallivanting through Europe and mountains. I'm not trying to put that down, but also I think like unless you come from a background of great financial resource there's cheap ways to do it, but that might be unrealistic for students. I think the best opportunity, I'm not saying you need to be an entrepreneur and write books and get on the grind in that way. You can, yeah. but I think is probably going out to the workforce. And even you mentioned like a bad home life. Like I was, again, I'm fortunate to have like, you know, I, I have just my mom, my brother, my dog with me and we're, we all get along just fine. Uh, so I've, you know, uh, I'm fortunate and privileged to have a fine home life, but I recognize a lot of people don't. And that's where you kind of go with taking a gap year becomes more of a, conversation and becomes more of a norm well maybe 18 year old kids can pair up and go room somewhere move across the country move somewhere else doesn't even matter and just see what it's like to again like let's get a job because there's plenty of jobs you can get coming out of high school that you know what i mean you really can you can get plenty of jobs or you know support yourself some sort of way and kind of come together and create your own like little family of 18 year olds i mean essentially that's what people do once they graduate college um you know, except they just have a degree behind them. But as we've stated, that degree sometimes is, or a lot of times isn't worth it and is way too expensive. So I think, uh, I'm, I'm, again, I'm not encouraging kids to like grow up too fast, but at the same time, like, what do you have to lose by going up? Grow up some, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, what do you have to lose? I don't think you have anything to lose. And, uh, I think maybe kind of embracing more of those non-traditional paths is the only way to do it because, you know, for all my talk about reforming the education system and how great that would be, and it would be great. I, I, you know, if I was to be a realist instead of an idealist, which I can lean towards, uh, being real, there's no point in even thinking about that as individuals because, you know, we have zero control of that. It's likely not to happen. But as individuals, we can really do some awesome things. And there still is some flexibility. Uh, you don't, we don't live in some dystopia where the government tells us everything to do and we only have one path. We're told one path, but we do have options. And it just requires getting a little bit creative around it. And I'm really, I have hope that at least at an individual level, COVID woke up a lot of people to have more open eyes to those um, kind of non-traditional pathways. And I largely have taken a non-traditional pathway. It's, you know, kind of ironic I'm ending up at a somewhat traditional institution, but uh, I've taken a non-traditional pathway to get to where I am today. And I think that also should be word to everyone too. Do taking these opportunities that aren't, you know, the standard path that society pushes you on doesn't mean you're forsaking anything at all. I haven't lost out on any of the traditional opportunities. I thought I would. I had people tell me you're being stupid. You're not going to get any colleges. You're going to forsake all that. And, you know, I, I, I kind of believe them at some point because I'm like, well, yeah. I don't want to got any wealthy parents donating to these schools. Maybe I really did lose out on that opportunity. But I prove them wrong. And if I can prove them wrong, I think a lot of every, you know, everyone else listening can prove them wrong. And this is all phases of life. Someone says you can't do something. You're going to miss out on this. You might just be able to have it all. And, um, you know, I call this well, well meant stupidity, right? I don't really want to call it stupidity, but it's what it is because every single person that got above average did something at some point that somebody who cared about them would have told them not to do. It never, 
ever, ever infinity happens, that you do what people that care about you say you should do to be safe and, and steady and, and the right thing, and you never get above. Everybody that goes above at some point finds something and says, I'm going to F and do this thing. And yep. the most yep. the people that love them the most try to talk them out of it. Everyone in my family was against it. Every single everybody that owns a successful restaurant, if they if they made the mistake of telling anybody, oh, that's risky, and well, and now you know now they're now they brag about knowing the guy that has three restaurants that are you know featured and have a Michelin star or won James Beard awards or whatever. Every single one of them, and, and almost none of them went to culinary school. Right? They they learned the business, they got in, and they made it happen. And yep. that's just one example. There's hundreds. You don't think. That my my business partner, who was a two-time winner of the Branson Award, thought I was crazy when I said I'm selling out my portion of the business to you for basically nothing, just to be just to get it done, and I'm going off to do a full-time podcast. Didn't think I had flipping lost my mind. Here I am connected to a guy worth about sixty million bucks, with my future just guaranteed, and I'm going to go do a podcast. But now that same guy's okay. like, man, you're, you don't give a shit about anything. You do whatever you want. And in some ways, he's a little bit envious of my life. Right? right. Every single person that gets somewhere where people look at it and go, gee, that must be nice. Or, gee, I wish I could do that. Every single one reached a point where they did something and said, oh, oh, you know, you shouldn't do that. Taking a gap year or setting up a business. I can't believe that an Ivy League institution looked at you and said, Yeah, let's look at his application. Set up a publishing company that's not successful and profitable when he was 15. Hmm, no, we don't care about that. That's stupid. I don't believe that happened. That probably had something to do with you being able to get in as, because you're kind of an outsider. You're not the connected kid. Like, places that are like that, they take in 80 to, 80 to 85% kind of legacy or just wealthy family kids, and then they have their 10 to 15% that get scholarships. Or, like, they're an ex look, look what we did. Altruistically, look what we did. We and but they're looking for the exceptional among those. Well, well yeah. I, also, I yeah, I didn't have the uh, not to get into the merits of affirmative action or not, but blanketly affirmative action no, was that's not true. playing. That's in valid. My, it was not going to be upset play about my, it. It's still true. Yeah, it wasn't playing in my favor there. I yeah. knew that, so I just I thought I had a lot going against me, and it, it did. I, let's put it bluntly: like the only thing that did lead me to doing it and getting in there was this non-traditional path. Is getting into any of those institutions the end-all, be-all? No, I knew that at the time and was thinking, hey, these people are wrong, thinking that this is the end-all, be-all. I realize it's a nice bonus; it's why I'm going there. But at the end of the day, I knew what I was risking and didn't care because I knew what they're even telling me isn't right in the long run. But it turns out that you can really have it all. You're not closing yourself off by pursuing your passion and by taking risks. And I, you're 100% right. And everyone around you will tell you no. And that is coming from fear too. And that does make it harder. You know, I was talking about earlier about overcoming your fears. And I guess one point that I didn't mention is like I was talking more about the internal fears. When you have external pressure being put on you to not yeah. do something, that adds another layer. But I think honestly – You just kind of got to turn inward again and go, you know what? I'm feeling this in my gut. And what I knew is that I'd have more regret 50 years from now, no matter how my life turned out, not doing this than if I just kind of like, you know, went down the normal path. I knew I would regret it deep down at my core. And I didn't want to have that regret. And I knew whatever ever happens, I was prepared to just 
eat it. Like if, if it all didn't work out and now I'm sitting here, you know, kind of with a business that's failing with, you know, no, uh, you know, higher education opportunities in front of me. Again, I would have figured out a way to be fine. But also at the same point, I was prepared to like, you know, you got to struggle for a little while. And I did struggle. I've struggled a lot to like get to where I am today. Um, and I was prepared to struggle for a lot longer and I am prepared to continue struggling. And I think that's a big thing too, just kind of going like, you know, it's not going to be easy to make that choice. It's not going to be easy to even endure it. Those people are right in telling you like, Hey, look, this path's easier. They're right. I actually won't deny it. They're actually right in what they're saying. What they're wrong in saying is that it's better just because it's easier. It's not better. In fact, Probably you know the hardest easier, thing is in life, the better is not, it is. Easier is not doing exercises. Easier is eating Twinkies. Yep. I mean, everything that's easier, it, 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 it ends up being worse. Like in everything the long... that's everything that's worth doing has challenge. If it didn't, everybody would do it. Of course. It, it, and it seems so preposterous once you realize that that anybody would ever take the other position. Oh yeah. But, when you look at society, you understand why they do. Like, I'll say things are stupid or people are doing stupid things at times, and I don't really mean to insult the person. What I'm saying is once, like, there's things you could do that are stupid things to do, but it's not stupid of you to do them if you don't know that. They're caught that on the dopamine sense, treadmill. Right? Yeah. yeah, no, they're caught on the, in my view, they're caught on the dopamine treadmill. And it, it's not, it's something we all easily could fall victim to where you're you're living for these short-term highs that you're getting from, Random activities that don't do you any good. I mean, um, something like 67 to 70 percent of Americans are, are overweight, and uh, you know some people have pre-existing conditions, but you know not everyone in this country has a metabolic issue. Clearly, people are making choices individually that are wrong, and we can talk about the food system and how that's messed up. But you know, likewise, that probably won't get fixed either. How do we choose to eat right? Right? We have to do it as individuals. It's not always easy to not get the short sugar high of a Twinkie. Right? Twinkies taste good; they're awesome. But in the long run, you'll be better off because of it, and it, it's tough to break away from it but this is what's awesome you don't struggle forever on just like the behaviors of working hard getting up every day working on your business at first yeah it's not easy but eventually your brain becomes rewired where it gets its hits from dopamine by doing those hard activities and instead of like you know getting dopamine by playing video games you'll get dopamine by working on your business and that's where you have the click where you don't even have a desire to do that anymore that other life that easy life you don't even have a desire to do it anymore because where you gain your fulfillment, where you get those rushes of dopamine, which controls 90% of our subconscious thought, where you get that from is working on your business, working on you know being healthier, being more fit, and building a better life. And uh, sadly, uh, you know most companies – and this isn't a bad thing. Most companies and pro- – I shouldn't say that. A lot of companies and products profit off of people – you know, Twinkies, for example, they want people eating Twinkies that aren't good. Coca-Cola isn't necessarily the healthiest drink in the world, um, right? Like everything in moderation. But they're not exactly – these big corporations, the same corporations that happen to you know, con- be involved with the government and all that stuff, the whole system that we're told to live by, they're incentivized to just keep us along this path as sheeps. And, you know – for all my talk about wanting to change the whole thing and propelling us to a better future, you know, individually, I guess, even with my stories, I hope that people just get their minds opened up to thinking a different way about it and thinking like, just because everyone's doing this doesn't mean it's right. And from my experience, I can say, give it a few months and you'll be so much happier. Never mind the results. You'll be so much happier just doing it because you'll finally start to garner some real fulfillment when you cut out all the extra fat or BS in your life that's holding you back. And uh, it's not easy, but it's a lot easier than one would think. And you can that's the change you can make overnight. You can change your behaviors overnight. Um, it's not easy, but you can. 
No, I agree with that. So with that big-ass brain in your head, what are you going to be studying when you go off to school? Uh, that's interesting. I think uh, kind of going along the lines of like, uh, you know, I'm not necessarily uh, trying to get a specific degree to go into the workforce. I'm interested in a lot of different stuff. Uh, neuroscience is a passion of mine. Mm. Screenwriting because I want to get into writing for movies. But I love marketing and business. Um, so I actually don't fit into any of the degree pathways. So I'm going to be petitioning to get a specialized concentration and basically just study a bunch of stuff that I'm interested in. It sounds like I'm taking random classes, kind of true, but I'm going to be taking stuff that I'm genuinely interested in and that will help develop my mind and broaden my perspective as a storyteller and entrepreneur. So, uh, I'll say specialized for now, but if I'm forced into something, I'll figure that out later. Gotcha. Well, hey, how can people learn more about you and what you're doing, your books, your publishing company, et cetera? Yeah, well, um, you can learn more about everything with me on my website, which is mevansinc.com, M-E-V-A-N-S-I-N-K-E-D. And all my books are on Amazon. I have a little over 12, uh, 12 published. I, it's hard to keep track, but there, there's three different series, all futuristic sci-fi on Amazon. It's Control Freaks. Um, World Gone Mad is my current one. That's the post-apocalyptic thriller. And then um, Conspiracy Chronicles. And if you just search them up on Amazon, you'll find them in Michael Evans. And they're all in Kindle Unlimited, too. So I don't know if people listening have Kindle Unlimited, but if you're a big reader, um, you can read it, uh, borrow it through there, and you know you don't have to pay anything if you already have a subscription. And, yeah, that that's me. And, uh, yeah, thank you. Hey, well, hey, I appreciate you being with us today. And uh, I wish people that were 20 years older than you thought as clearly as you do. I really do. Um, I, I've been saying for a long time, I, I, I was really hard on the millennial generation, um, but I, I think that maybe uh, maybe what I was looking for in young people, maybe skip the generation. I don't mean to pick on any individual generation, but I'm, I'm talking averages. Uh, younger yeah. folks, because you, you know, people think of millennials as you. You're either really, 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 really like the youngest millennial left, or you're part of this what they're calling Gen Z. I'm Gen Z, yeah. Yeah, depending on who, what demographer you know draws the line. Um, I think that we have a lot, a lot to be excited about uh, with your generation, and uh, you're gonna, just remember you're going to be the old fart in your generation when you're my age. Because you're the beginning of a new generation, so uh, you kind of kind of be like what they call the Xennials, like the people that were the youngest Gen Xers, and uh, that might be a cool place to be. I think that, well, uh, yeah, you know, it really might. Really I think uh, we're an entrepreneurial generation overall. I, I think highly of young people. We've got our flaws too, like every generation, like people in hey, general. Let me tell you something. Don't ever let anybody tell you that your young kids are stupid, because the point is that all young people, in some ways, are stupid. That's because they're young. The only thing that protects the ass of the Gen X, people like me, from being known of how stupid we were is there was no such thing as a digital cam camera or social media because some of the stupid we did so exceeds the stupid that you've seen on the Internet in the last 20 years that it, it, you can't even begin to imagine how stupid we were. But we just didn't have documentation. That's it. That's, you're, you're always dumb when you're young, even when you're smart. I was a smart, oh. young, dumb person. That, and I used to get really pissed when people would tell me that. But as you get older, you're like, yeah, I was dumb. <laughs> I, I I'm still am. I think I'll always look back, no matter how old I am, and say, ten years ago, I was dumb. I, I'm always, uh, I'm definitely, definitely aware of the fact that, like, I am far from 
knowing really anything about life in the sense of like I have my own perspective, but I am I've got a long way to go, as so do we all. That's also why we need more voices in the conversation, not to like hammer home the point about our divided country. But as an individual, I've I'm a teenager and I'm not saying I don't know what it's like being a 20 year old, but uh, I do dumb stuff like everyone else. I probably mentioned this in my bio, but I go to abandoned buildings and do urban exploring. I'm, I'm into a lot of stuff that maybe some adults would think are kind of, uh, we'll say, uh, less intelligent or immature, but uh, hey, I mean, I have fun doing it, but I don't put it on video much because uh, you're smart. So yeah. <laughs> you're, smart and you're, you're, you're smart and you're dumbness, right? That's, yeah. Yeah, I, I have to say you're ahead of me because I, I don't know if I would have succeeded at much because there would have been a lot to dig up if if, if we would have uh, taken pictures of our nonsense when we were kids, man. But oh, I think you would have taken advantage of the tools in a similar way. I might, have, I, I might have. I was. I needed money, so I probably if I would. That's the thing. Like, so you know, you were talking about taking a gap year and what have you. And I wanted to hit this before we wrap up. Um, there's so many opportunities that people have today that, that my generation didn't, and. Um, one of my friends on, on social media, Jake Reed, uh, recently, and he's a millennial, he's at mid dead center of the, the demographic, s- said of his own generation, he got a lot of shit because people thought he was a boomer when he said this. He said, never, uh, never have any done so little with so much or something to that effect. Like they have so much opportunity <laughs> and done so little with it. Um, and, and you know, he, like I said, he took some crap over that, but th- there is some truth in it because, like, when I got out of the Army, all I wanted to do was figure out where I wanted to be in the country. And I ended up in Fort Worth, Dallas area, because I had a friend here, and I came here, and I had a place to start. That's why I ended up here. I met this girl when we were on vacation a couple of years ago. She had been through college. She had her student loans. And I'm like, and she was driving our Uber. And I said, well, you know, you always ask people like that. Like, why are you doing this? How do you like it? What have you? Yeah. And she said, well, I'm, I'm. I'm going to be doing this for two years. I'm about a year into it. When I'm done, I will have paid all my student loans off. And she had Uber cert and she had uh, Lyft cert. And then she also did like Uber Eats and DoorDash and the Amazon delivery thing. And she was just going from one town to the next. Whenever she would get bored, she would just go to another place. And she was using uh, Airbnb to find a place to live temporarily, you know, not staying in a nice, super, you know, touristy place like I would she was staying in just good enough to get by she was making enough money to like triple pay her loans and save money she was making contacts and she said what I want to do is in two years I want to have been in you know 10 to 20 cities and towns and areas and figure out where I want to be I'll already have friends I'll already have contacts and I was like she's hustling her way across the country and She's having a blast because she only works when she wants to. Like, yeah, you couldn't yeah. do that when she was like 25, 26 years old. You couldn't do that when I was 25. If you went somewhere to work, you either worked odd jobs if you wanted to do that, or you took a job, and then if you left, well, you didn't have a job anymore. And then you would, like, ruin your work history because they, whoever you were, like, you only worked there three months. Why? Well, I'm, I'm moving around the country. So that's what you're going to do here. So you couldn't find a job. And there's so many options. Like, there's people doing, like, the woofing thing where they go on organic farms as volunteers and they get a small amount of money, but they get a place to stay. Like, there's so many ways you could see the whole damn country, even with COVID, because I guarantee you, like, if you go work on a farm, you're not going to be masked up or whatever, you know, when you're you're feeding the chickens or whatever. Like, no matter what you want to do, there's some leverage point you can use now. And, and that just didn't exist 
even 20 years ago, let alone almost, I hate to say it, almost 40 years ago. But it just didn't. And no, so, you're like, right. people need to take advantage of it. And you know what? If you're my age, you can do that shit, too. You know? Yes. You, you still can do it. That's what The internet doesn't realize. discriminate. Yeah, no, there's no, there's no age where you hit it and you go, like, there's no opportunity left for me. Like, I mean, in the, corp- the traditional corporate setting, right, corporations don't want to hire people above 60 typically. You know, that's really tough to get a job if you're in your 60s, 50s even. They might kind of have some age um, bias against you because they'll they'll want the young gun who can they can pay less and he'll be with them longer uh that that you know that's all true but when you like the gig economy all these different things that the internet has brought to rise i mean we can sit here for days and talk about all the bad it's done but what's so cool about the internet at least at this moment is that we get to choose how we want to utilize that tool and if we can minimize the negative effects the positive effects are so so awesome and i'm i'm very aware of the fact that i'm lucky in so many different ways i mean Lucky to have like, you know, a mom who like has been able to support me even when, you know, my, you know, my dad's kind of like a deadbeat, you know, <laughs> like, you know, like he, you know, the fact that she's been able to do that and be able to support me where if it was my dad supporting me, I'd be in bad shape, right? I recognize I'm lucky there, but a big portion of my luck too comes from the fact that one, she was able to work online from home. So she was able to drive me around to sports practices when I was a kid. So my life's benefited Tom from the internet. And then when I got out there and wanted to start making opportunity, I mean, frankly, like, I wouldn't be able to even remotely dream of any of the things I'm doing right now if the internet didn't exist, if I couldn't, again, like contact my editor who lives in Puerto Rico, my cover designer lives in uh, Prague, and work with people literally all over the world to produce my books, and then be able to send it to people all over the world and be able to, like, people all over the world can buy it because um, platforms like Amazon uh, allow entrepreneurs like me to put up our products on there. And, you know, we get to sell to everyone all over the world. It basically, you know, it's easy. It's actually pretty easy to do so. I mean, so it's pretty awesome. And I couldn't be more thankful to be alive right now for all the issues. And what's really awesome is if you're listening to this podcast, I can guarantee that you're alive. So we all have that same opportunity. And whether you want to write books like me, whether you want to create videos, whether you want to make, you know, like art, like arts and crafts i'm not an arts and crafts person but there's so many cool stuff you can do uh whether you want to start your own podcast whatever you want to do there is opportunity out there and yes there's competition yes there's other people doing it too but that's everything in life and honestly i think if you work hard and do everything we said in this podcast i think uh everyone out there can do it if they want to well on a final note there with competition when 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 i was uh in the more conventional business world, I would get a lot of people pitching us to back them with investments. And whenever they said, well, we have no competition, I was like, okay, then I don't want to invest in you. Because if you have no competition, you have no market. So it's good to have yep. competition, right? Anyway, Michael, yeah. I'll make sure that we do have links to your website and all of your uh, stuff on Instagram, Facebook, Book Club, Goodreads, all that stuff will all be linked. People can find your book, etc., and they definitely should check it out. I really appreciate you being with us today for about an hour and a half. Yeah, I really love talking with you all. Hope everyone has a great rest of your day, and thank you, Jack. This is great. So um, what's your excuse? It's COVID. It's this. It's that. When life picks up, when life gets better, see? You got an 18-year-old that's just like, you know what? I'm just going to go out and start stomping ass, kicking ass, and taking names. And that should inspire you to figure out, well, what can you do? And, and I'll tell you one thing. You might have thought during this, you know what, when you're 18, you have an advantage. Because you're not vested in other things yet. Because you have more freedom at 18 than you'll ever have for the rest of your life. You're absolutely correct. 
Unfortunately, most of our 17, 18, 19 year old kids don't realize the opportunity that they have today. Some of them do, like Michael. But you know that thing you just said about how you know you have the most opportunity when you're like 18 or 19? Whatever age you are, it's the most opportunity you're going to ever have for the rest of your life. You're never going to have any more opportunity than you do today. You'll have, you'll have exactly one less day of opportunity tomorrow. Do you see how that works? If you only have 20 years of your life left, then tomorrow you have 19 years and 364 days. And then 19 years and 363 days. You see how that works? You will never have more opportunity to do more for yourself than you do right now, this moment. So seize on it. Make something of it. Do something with your dash. And here, a quick reminder, if you like the work that we do here and you want to support us, one of the ways you can do that is do your online shopping where? tspaz.com. T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. If you go to tspaz.com, you'll see all the items that I've ever reviewed on Amazon. You'll know that if you're looking at something I've reviewed there, I own it, I bought it, I spent my money on it, and I would buy it again, or it doesn't go on tspaz. But no matter what you buy, as long as you start there, whether it's something I've reviewed or not, you help support us in the work that we do. So check out tspaz.com today. Today's item of the day is one I've brought around a lot, but I'm bringing it back again because it's on sale again. It's the stainless steel insulated French press by a company called Secura. Um, it's, just, it's a funny thing, but I did a lot of research to find a great French press, and I found one. And it was made by a company called Findine. And it's made out of glass, and then they stopped making it, and then they started making it again, and on and on and on and on and on. But it was also made out of glass. So we were going to go, this is a couple of years ago, we were going to go on vacation, and my wife has so fallen in love with drinking the really good coffee we drink from, like, Holler Roast and Food Forest Farms and Mai Tai Coffee, all supporters of the MSB, um, and using a French press, and she's like, we should take the French press with us. And she's like, that glass thing will get broken by the baggage monkeys on the airlines. I wonder if they make a metal one. I'm like, well, of course they do. So I started looking. I found the best one I could find, this double-walled, insulated uh, French press by a company called Secura. And we got one, and we love it. And then they put it on sale, and I paid more for it than you have to. Right now it's on sale at 30% off. That saves you about 12 bucks. And I'm telling you, French presses do so much more than make coffee. They make coffee. They make tea. They make various infusions. I use it when I do my mead making. I'll make a really strong herbal tea, and then basically I'll make you know a melamal-infused uh, mead, an herb-infused mead. Uh, they're just so much you can do. They're so versatile, and I just think they make the best coffee you'll ever drink. Uh, again, it's the company is called Secura, and they also, if you want a bigger one, they have a big old 50-ounce one. It's on sale for 39 bucks. That's $20 off what they normally sell at retail. So they're both on sale today. Check them out, and remember, anything that you buy at tspaz.com helps support us. Also consider becoming a member. You know, I talked about ButcherBox today. You should be a ButcherBox customer. A giant box of meat comes to your house every month. And really, if you are already a customer, think about trying the tri-tip. See how you like it the way that I gave you today. And then if you really like them, you know, it's one of the bigger pieces of meat because you get six choices in the standard size box. So I just changed my box for the next month because we got a freezer stacked with ribeyes to three of those tri-tips. That's how much I like them the way that I just described. And it's so simple and so easy to do that way. Try that with cauliflower rice. What the hell does this have to do with MSB? Ten bucks a month off ButcherBox. Twelve months in a year, $120 off one provider that does a discount for MSB. Fifty dollars a year, $120 off. 
So with one discount, your membership pays for itself more than 2x, and there's like 65 other supporting vendors in there. So check it out today. It's only 18 cents an episode. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more. And remember, I also take cryptocurrency, and if you don't see the option for the cryptocurrency you want to use, just email me. I will hook you up. Okay, with that, let's talk about our song of the day. I said the song of the day would tie back into our quote from George Bernard Shaw. He said, life is not about finding yourself. Life's about creating it yourself. Um, as I said, I, I see both of those being valid, that we do need to be creating ourselves, But we also might want to discover who we really are at the same time, because if we know what we're starting with, we have a better idea of what we want to create. And a lot of times we do forget who and what we really are. Sometimes we forget it because of all the hustle and bustle and being uh, in the daily grind and the daily life. Now, a lot of people's lives have been vastly disrupted this year. But I think what's happened, many people have retreated inside of themselves. Alcoholism rates are like through the roof. Drug abuse is through the roof. Spousal abuse is through the roof. Child, like People are just like walled in their little homes. And I think maybe we're missing an opportunity to truly discover who we are with a clear heart and a clear mind. And I've got a guy for you today with music that's usually kind of about partying and that kind of crazy life. But it's not today. Jimmy Buffett. This song is called When the Coast is Clear. And this song is as much, much about the subject I'm giving you right now as it is about a place. It's about a place on the coast of the Gulf and going there when all the people aren't there and how, how nice it is and how it is the way that it was before everything exploded with population and becoming a destination. It's partly about that. But it's also about you know Jimmy Buffett finding himself every year by going to this place so that he can be alone with his own thoughts and who he is. In fact, one of the lines in it is, I go down to talk to me. I go down there to talk to me. I go down there to talk to me. That's a nice way of saying it. I go down there to talk to myself, to speak to myself. I think sometimes we don't talk to ourselves enough. People say it's okay to talk to yourself. It's not okay if you get answers. I think that's nuts. Why would you talk to yourself if you don't get answers? We are multidimensional beings, and I don't mean multidimensional as we exist across space and time in some kind of weird physics way. I mean that we have many layers and many dimensions of our personality, and it is that internal dialogue that we reach things that we would normally think of as the subconscious. They're not the subconscious. They're just the parts of ourselves that we ignore. Now, with what you heard from Michael today, if you'll marry it to that idea and truly discover who you really are, maybe you'll figure out who you really want to be and do the best you can at making the most of that dash. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. The air is turning cool Shutting off the super slack The kids are back in school Tourist traps are empty They can see abound Almost like it used to be Before the circus came to town That's when it always happens Same time every year I come down to talk to me 
when the coast is clear. Hello, Mr. Other Me. It's been a long, long time. We hardly get to have these chats. That in itself's a crime. So tell me all your trouble. I'll surely tell you mine. We'll laugh and smoke and cuss and joke and have a glass of wine. That's where it always happens. I still come down.